Hey, CE plan members from CE Impact, this is Game Changers. I'm Jen Moulton, and this week we're talking about a topic that you may have seen in the news. And if you live in the Washington State area, you probably know about it all too well. Uh, there's a new outbreak of the multi-resistant fungus Candida auris. And with us today is Jeff Wall. Thanks for being with us today. Glad to be here, Jen. Yeah, welcome. Um, yeah. Everybody knows you well, so I think maybe <laughs> intros aren't necessary. Uh, no, I don't think so either. So yeah, um, we can, yeah, we can definitely dive into this. Um, and and I, I appreciate the inter introduction. This is important uh, because uh, I, I have to honestly that this uh, fungus has kind of been, uh, no pun intended, uh, uh, you know, in, in the periphery of my vision. Don't don't take that for a joke, um, you know, you know, going on. But but, it, you know, it, I'm starting to see where we're starting to get more and more outbreaks. And I think the CDC is 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 taking this very seriously. And I honestly hadn't heard much about it simply because there had been an outbreak in my neck of the woods. But it has definitely hit the lay media. And this is a bad organism. And so I thought this would be a good a good topic. And so working with CEI, we kind of kind of put our heads together and thought, yeah, this is this is something that's big. And it's something that I'm sorry to say that many of, you know, of my listeners and listeners of the podcast have a have a, a fortunate good shot of seeing as as the numbers of this bug arise and, and are going up all, all across the world, including the United States. So it's currently being defined as by the CDC as a, as an emergent rapid progressing global infectious disease threat. So hopefully that means we're going to start getting a lot more money thrown at, at figuring out what to do. Uh, but what really piqued my interest in and what Jenna talked about is there was a lot of lay media press uh, uh, talking about a big outbreak in Washington state. And uh, fortunately, nobody died. Uh, from this outbreak, which from what I've read is pretty unusual. Um, but uh, it, and it, but it was like in the first big outbreak in the Pacific Northwest uh, done in, found in, in Seattle and King in King County. Uh, so far, uh, they, there have been uh, five cases that have been confirmed. All of them were, were pretty sick, but none of them ended up uh, actually uh, passing away from it. Was so that's a good thing. The reason they found this uh, was because one of the hospitals in in this kindred uh, kindred hospital in Seattle, and again, this is all public knowledge, so I don't see why I can't use their name. It's a long term acute care hospital, and they actually have a pilot program where they are screening all their patients who come in for this Canada Aris. So this is not Staph Aureus. I've already heard a couple people, you know, is that related to Staph Aureus? No, it's a, it has nothing. It's just the, it's spelled similarly, right? So Canada Aris, A U R I S. They are screening everybody for it, and they found it, and then patients. Uh, you know, they were kind of sick to begin with. They found down the road they were actually much sicker. And so that I think because this has had so much lay media uh, presence, I think people are going to get questions about it. And I think from the practitioner perspective, what makes me nervous, scared about this bug is it's incredible incredibly high level of resistance, especially for a fungal organism. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, the bug itself, Canada Aris, was first identified in Japan in, in 2009. By 2016, uh, the CDC had had enough overseas reports of, of it being reported in Asia and Europe that they actually directed uh, U.S. laboratories that, uh, that when they saw they needed to report it to the CDC. 
And when they did that, then they did kind of went backwards in a lot of these areas and did some epidemiological studies and found that, again, there had been reports of, they had found Canada auris backwards uh, way back to, to 2013. So it's been circulating around in the United States for about 10 years here. But the problem is, is it was kind of a low level threat. Yes, it was a bad bug, but most of the time people didn't run into it. So it wasn't any big deal. And then uh, COVID hit. And uh, there is a high level of, of uh, correlation between recent COVID infection and the development of severe Canada RS in, um, uh, infections. As I've read, the, the reason for that connection is largely unknown at this point. So why exactly a fungal or a viral infection would lead down the road to a, a serious fungal infection is uh, is currently being investigated. But they've done several retrospective studies and have found that that if you had a recent COVID-19 infection, that that was a, a high risk factor for going on to develop uh, Canada RS. And as of you know, the kind of immediate post-pandemic period, we've seen a spike of about 50% relatively of, of numbers of Canada aureus uh, infections being reported. Now, again, a lot of that is uh, some bias because uh, prior to, to, to 2016 in the United States, we weren't even testing for it. So it's, you know, if you don't test for it, you're not going to find it. But certainly they've seen a, a reported spike in the cases uh, in, in the intervening years since the, since the uh, pandemic started. And again, I was personally completely unaware of this. So uh, doing the research for this podcast, it, it, it really did. So all of this really kind of surprised me because I just hadn't hadn't heard or, or seen of that. And I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, this, like a lot of, of localized infectious diseases, if you run into it personally or you see it in your health system, you kind of become vigilant of it. But if you don't, you know, it's just something kind of on the periphery of something you read. And you're like, oh, well, hope I never run into that. Well, um, I think, unfortunately, given what we've got, I think you are probably going to run into that here in the next in the next several years. It is an opportunistic pathogen. Um, uh, it has a high level of uh, hospital outbreaks and mortality approaches 50 percent in bloodstream infections in people who have candid RS. Mortality is obviously much less in other types of infections, but uh, you know that is significantly higher than even Canada Albicans blood infections, which have a pretty high mortality associated with them as well. Uh, you know, candidemias are not good things and, and people don't tend to do well with them, but this uh, that, that, that mortality quote is significantly higher than uh, what we have with, with, with other cannibal subspecies. And the reason for that is that it is unbelievably resistant. Um, most cannibal species are, are, are very susceptible to the azole class of antifungals. Um, you know, a Canada or a Canada albicans is is at least in my neck of the woods usually susceptible to plain old fluconazole, and it works pretty decently. Uh, but even relatively resistant organisms like Canada glabrata, okay, we may not be able to use flu, uh, fluconazole, but the other more potent azole antifungals like uh, voriconazole work quite well against them. That is not the case with Canada auris, where uh, uh, almost azole antifungals are resistant to it. And unbelievingly, uh, even uh, uh, other antifungals, including amphotericin B, have a high incidence of resistance. And that's pretty amazing. So uh, uh, that is, I think, one of the big reasons why this has been so challenging is if somebody does develop a serious infection with it, by the time you figure out it is Canada RS, uh, you know, the patient has already probably been sick for a few days. And can you can you catch them? 
uh, before they can pass the point of no return and find something that's actually going to work against them. And there's some strikes we have going on there as well that we're going to talk about in just a second. Uh, oh, so the, the the other big problem that's associated with Canada RS is that uh, it is an unbelievably hardy strain of fungus. Uh, the, uh, it has a incredibly high level of plasticity. Uh, which means in English that it lives on just about every surface and it lives for a long, long time. So it survives on a range of, of surface types, including dry uh, sites, wet site, plastic surfaces, uh, stainless steel surfaces. Um, it's actually viable for up to 14 days on, on plastic, um, which is incredible. And it is highly tolerant to both level of salinity or how much salt and heat. Now, why is this? Um, it is because, again, it has this, this phenotypic plasticity, which really means is that uh, like most uh, uh, yeast organisms, it can change its, uh, its shape, basically, at will. And in this case, it can switch shapes between the typical yeast form that you probably have ever seen back in microbiology. Uh, uh, then it can switch to other types of yeast forms, including filamentation yeasts, and uh, other types of, of, of yeast forms that, that basically make it, if, if it finds itself in an unfriendly atmosphere, it can actually alter its shape to adapt to that atmosphere, which is just unbelievable. And so yeah, epidemiologic studies, and this is, this is pretty disheartening, epidemiologic studies have been done in hospitals that have ha had outbreaks of Canada RS, and they have, uh, in patients who have had this, they've looked at, they've done uh, epidemiologic uh, detection and surveillance in the rooms of these patients, and they found that, that Canada RS was detected on the mattresses, the bedside tables, the bed rails, the chairs, the window sills in patients, and here's the kicker, up to three months after the patient had been discharged. Just absolutely incredible. And so uh, this is an incredibly hardy organism. Um, and, uh, you know, probably beyond the scope uh, and purview of this pod is, is you know, what strategies can we use to disinfect <laughs> rooms? I mean, are we going to have to burn a hospital room to the ground when someone comes in? Because that's about all that, you know, that's all that's left to treat this. I mean, you know, it's just, I mean, that's just incredible. And that's, that's far more a sturdiness associated with an organism, uh, except for things like maybe C. diff that, that, are, that are able to form a spore around them. It, it's just, it's, you know, it's absolutely incredible uh, what, what we've seen with this organism. So, um, and then again, so, you know, the one, two punch of this is a difficult bug to disinfect in both people and in, in rooms. And again, we go back to the resistance the surveillance studies from Asia, where it's, 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 it's been around the longest, uh, found that 93% of, of these isolates are resistant to fluconazole, 85% uh, are resistant to all other azole antifungals. 35% are resistant to amphotericin B. And I had don't believe I've ever heard of any fungus with that level of resistance to ampho B. I mean, ampho B has only always kind of been the hydrogen bomb of, 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 of antifungals. And the only reason we don't use it more often is that it has all these weird side effects and, and life-threatening side effects, which is why old men like me call it amphoterable instead of amphotericin. You know, but I, it was just one of those things where it's like I never could, I, I, I really can't think of too many times in my career where, where the, you know, we said, well, we can't use amphotericin B because it's resistant. It's like, really? You know, I, I didn't think there was resistance to amphotericin B. Well, there is. The good news is that the echinocandins are less resistant. Um, it's still high, but it's more like 10% to 12%. So there, I, and the guidelines currently recommend that as first-line treatment. 
if you do have a, especially a bloodstream candidate, uh, infection with candida auris, but it does, there are still uh, pockets where that, that uh, resistance goes up. So it is entirely possible that you can run into a strain of candida auris that is an, uh, resistant to basically all known antifungals that are on the market. And in fact, some of these uh, uh, epidemiologic studies that have been done have found that again, up to 10 to 12% of some of the strains that they've, they've been collecting and, and doing uh, susceptibility studies on are resistant to all three classes of, of uh, antifungals currently routinely used in the U.S. Again, aphotericin B, um, uh, the azoles, and the echinocandins. So just just absolutely unbelievable. Um, I won't, this isn't a, a microbiology pod, so I won't dive too much in, into why. Uh, just suffice it to say that, that nearly all the antifungals that we have on the market work in some way, shape, or form to break up uh, ergosterol, which is ergosterol is, is basically the, the main component in the fungal cell membrane. And basically almost, almost all the antifungals we have bind to that and break it apart at some point, and that causes cell death. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, and there's some genes that 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 potentiate that. Apparently, Candida auris, because it's able to 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 alter its shape, can basically alter the binding sites of all these antifungals to this ergosterol cell wall. And once that happens, it it, it essentially is 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 linked to resistance. So, just absolutely incredible. Um, as far as an infection is concerned, you don't want to push the panic button. If the, just because the patient grows out Canada auris, like uh, all Canada subspecies, it is entirely possible that it's a commensal in a patient. And in fact, like MRSA, once apparently you are colonized with Canada auris, it's you pretty much can't get rid of it. It's going to be with you forever, apparently. And so it is, you know, if someone, you know, for example, is relatively healthy, things are going fine, they maybe have a urinary tract infection and they, the UA shows yeast and you grow out Canada auris, you know, um, and, but they also grows, I don't know, E. coli or something. I would not panic and go, oh my goodness, we're going to have to try and figure out some weird antifungal combination to treat this. You know, like most Canada species, you know, it is entirely possible it's just a commensal. However, if it is in a sterile body site, such as blood, CSF, pericardial fluid, you know, then unfortunately that probably means you have a systemic infection with it and and things are, are not going to be so great. Um, other testing, you know, again, traditional culturing is done. You can use a serum beta-glucan. Uh, beta I, I was have a hard time pronouncing that one. Uh, it is got a, a negative, if a low uh, has a negative result, uh, it has a, a low probability. So it's, it's, it's a fairly sensitive test, but it's not specific. So if you weren't exactly sure, that might be something you could do. Unfortunately, uh, uh, then let's say you do find uh, uh, Canada. It's important to remember that a lot of small hospitals don't even uh, speciate. They just say you've got yeast and we have Canada and we just don't know which one it is. And even in hospitals that do speciate yeast, uh, uh, standard uh, culturing techniques often have a hard time telling, telling Canada RS from other cannabis subspecies. And so you probably will need some high-tech stuff like moldy toff or something else that, that, that will help actually uh, identify the, this, this Canada subspecies as RS. So just kind of keep that in mind um, yeah, that you might get. This is a Canada species. We can't seem to identify which one it is. We know it isn't albicans. We know it isn't uh, glabrata or listiniaria these others, they just haven't ID'd it. Um, it might well be Canada RS, and you might well have to direct the, your microbiology lab if they have the ability uh, to, to use some PCR technology to tr really try and figure out what, what, what you're dealing with here. Susceptibility testing gets really tricky as well, because as of uh, the, the recording of this podcast, 
there are no breakpoints that are approved by, by CDC and FDA for susceptibility and resistance. So that's going to make things kind of kind of challenging. Uh, there's been a couple of, of retrospective studies that have tried to get at that and tried to take a look at, you know, what an MIC-90 might be. But as of now, uh, you know, uh, if you get a culture back, you're probably not going to get a susceptibility panel back unless you specifically ask the, the uh, microbiology lab to do special testing to figure out what the MIC of, of various and sundry um, antifungals are against this, this bug. So again, you know, it sounds like a lot of bad news, unfortunately, which I mean, I guess it kind of is. If you were to run into a patient with serious, with a serious, again, in a sterile site, uh, can, uh, candida R's infection, as I said before, un unfortunately, you're probably not going to be able to use any azole antifungals because they have a high level of resistance. And so that's, that's probably not something you're going to want to use. That really kind of leaves you in, in the realm of, of amphotericin B or the echinocandins. Uh, current recommendations um, are that, that echinocandins are reasonable, but if the patient is super duper sick, um, it might be reasonable to 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 switch to, to liposomal amphotericin B if they're not perking up. But right now, the, the current guidelines say either caspofungin or mycofungin are recommended as first-line therapy in, in adults and children over age two. Um, and then just basically following their clinical course because the way this bug is set up, you may, you may well not get identification of the organism or susceptibility testing that you can use. So basically, your only real barometer of how the patients, if, the, if you've got the right bug-drug combo, is to see how the patient's doing. If you have some signs and symptoms of infection for more than two days, the current recommendation is to switch liposomal amphotericin B, again, noting that, that there's a high level of resistance there as well. So that's the current recommendation, you know, start with, with an echinocandin and, and go to liposomal amphotericin B if the patient isn't improving. Uh, as far as synergy dosing, and now we're kind of getting off into the weeds here, uh, apparently there's a, a couple of in vitro studies that suggest that the combination of voriconazole and mycofungin may have a, a, a strong synergy against Canada RS, but again, that's that's kind of in the test tube and, and we don't know what's going on here. Are there any other drugs uh, that are available or on the market or heading to market that might help us with this very, very resistant and apparently becoming more common organism? And uh, the answer is yes, there are several cousins of echinocandins that are in phase two and phase three studies that are being looked at, not just for this bug, but a, but a wide variety of other uh, yeast forms as well. But there actually is a drug that's currently on the market that's been studied. And we actually talked about this drug uh, a year or two ago when it first hit the market. And that's um, Abrexafungurb. Okay, this is a huge long name. Abrexafungurb uh, is actually FDA approved in the United States for vaginal yeast infections. And uh, it is a first in class uh, tripeninoid antifungal agent. Um, and it has a, 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 it, ta it targets the same sites on the gestural cell wall as a kind of candens. It does it at a slightly different area, so it, it doesn't have the same resistance pattern as a kind of candens do. Um, but again, it works the same way. It basically blows the cell wall apart, and that allows the at least the cell death of the fungus. It is FDA approved again in the United States for vaginal yeast infections. I have not seen it just because we usually don't need to use anything that powerful for vaginal yeast infections that we can usually use fluconazole and that works pretty decent in most people. And this is, of course, a much more, you know, um, a much more expensive drug. So uh, there are uh, some uh, a thought that if you had a serious infection with a multi-drug resistant version of Canada RS that you could try this medication because it's at least available uh, in the United States and relatively easy to get. The $64 question is, 
what dose, how long, I mean, all that would be up in the air. So if you were faced and had your back against the wall with, you know, a, 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 a multi-drug resistant version of, of this, I think it might be reasonable to try, but you would really be out on a limb as far as, as, as dosing and amount and, and all this other stuff. Plus, unfortunately, it only comes orally. And so, you know, again, if someone was super duper sick, septic shock in the ICU, you may not be able to get access for them to get the drug as well. So um, a, uh, a not very uh, good news sort of, uh, of, uh, of game changers because, yeah, this is a bad bug. It's rapidly being spread across the country. It's resistance is super high, like all Canada uh, infections that are serious, not, you know, not, you know, surface infections, but, but, you know, infections like candidemia, it has a high mortality associated with it. And once you've got it, doesn't seem like you can get rid of it. Um, and, and I think we're really going to have to rethink infection control techniques in these patients if, if they can literally find this bug months after the fact in somebody's room. So a uh, fascinating and semi-terrifying uh, organism that I think we're going to have to keep an eye on as time goes on. So not good news, Jen, but... Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jeff, for that. Yeah, you think? Oh. <laughs> thanks, I think. Uh, not so. a great way to start our Monday. I know. Um, that's, one question I had, so you talked about, you know, the discovery of this, mm -hmm. you know, they were actually screening for it, like proactively. Yes. So mm -hmm. are you seeing, um, or do you foresee, I guess, that hospitals will start to screen for this? I mean, given the fact that, you know, once they're in your hospital, it's hard to get rid of it. Right. Um, uh, but, guess, I mean, have you seen that yet or do you anticipate that in the near future? I do anticipate it in the near future. My health system does not do that. And I have the sneaking suspicion is this is one of those it's going to happen to the other guy until it happens to me, right? You yeah. know, uh, 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 the Pacific Northwest, unfortunately, is has been ground zero uh, in many ways for for COVID, and so it isn't really all that surprising because of the the relationship between COVID infection and Canada Aris that they have now seen a big spike of that. Um, I suspect as this bug uh, finds pockets throughout the country, once your health system gets hit with it, right? Once once you have an outbreak. Uh, you're going to be doing that at least for a while. And, and I think that's, yeah, I do think that that's what's going to happen is as soon as hospitals have a, have an outbreak or area hospitals have an outbreak, you know, a, a hospital two miles from you has an outbreak of this stuff, given it's, you know, it's unbelievable hardiness. I think that's what a lot of places will do. The problem is it's going to be pretty pricey, you know, because that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. And because yeah, I mean, you'd think that you would want to do that proactively before you actually get it, and then you're, right. you know, being in reactive mode. But what's the cost of that? Right. Well, considering they're going to have to do again, uh, the, the you know the the PCR technology. Now, yeah. my hospital, of course, we you know most large hospitals have you know this equipment. I'm sure they're going to have to get the special equipment that they need to to actually look for this bug. Our current blood culture. PCR identification of the film array, basically looking for individual bugs, does not look for this. Um, it, it looks for Canada albicans and it looks for Canada glabrata, and that's it. And so, uh, will they have to, you know, uh, will they have to do a special test? Will the companies that do these PCR technology add that test as standard to their their blood culture uh, a panel? Those are all great questions. But in, in a in a in a bug like this, you know, it's kind of like you know you know MRSA in the old days or COVID really that you know, yeah. once you have a serious outbreak, I think you're kind of forced by infection control uh, uh, dictates to really take a look at it. You know, yeah. again, just to pre prevent somebody walking in who may not even have any symptoms, but they're colonized with it. And then they right. roll around right. on the bed. And yeah. Well, and bed. that's what the study talks about is people didn't even have symptoms. So you yeah, wouldn't have exactly. to be not screened. 
Exactly. And then the next person who comes in there is an immunocompromised patient and then we're in real trouble. So yeah. 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 Well, definitely a game changer. Yes, indeed. Not all game changers are good, unfortunately. No, that's right. Yeah. Not all game changers are good. Yeah. Well, definitely something to keep an eye on. And I appreciate you digging into it. It isn't a great way to start our Monday, but definitely uh, knowledge is power. So we yes, have to uh, be ready for it, I guess, when it comes. So appreciate okay. you digging into it. No problem. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. Thanks for being with us today. If you're a CE plan member, be sure to claim your CE credit for this episode. And as always, thanks again, Dr. Wall. Uh, have a great week and keep learning.